I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, And dignity is about self-rule. Is it not? It's not exactly news that America today is deeply divided. Our guest today argues that not only is this not news, but that this state of angry divisions is and always has been an essential part of our very identity since America's founding. It's a great thing that there's such a renewed interest in history. Perhaps Part of that is the immense popularity of the Broadway hit musical Hamilton with its hip-hop history lesson. Well, as it turns out, a fair amount of whitewashing the true Hamilton story was employed in the play's creation and delivery. Today, people talk about our founder's intent, as if there is one. The truth is, just as there were many founders, so were there many opinions as to what this nation should be. Did independence from Mother England mean more than simply that perhaps a hopeful new commitment to self-rule and real democracy? Or was too much real democracy a threat to good government and orderly economics? Those were some of the opinions that there were. Was it meant to be a nation of, by, and for the people, or one where America had a new royalty of our own, which, by all rights, ought to govern? Well, it was never resolved. And today's divisions, which so many are shocked by, are merely the continuance of a 250-year-old class struggle. Could we ever be a nation unlike others with a strong middle class instead of rulers and ruled? Historian William Hoagland writes in a new essay, quote, Each side in the fight, as it reignites today, wants to invoke the founding in hopes of grounding its position in fundamental American values and defining the other side as un-American. End of quote. Well, I have a bumper sticker on my car that says pro-America, anti-Trump. I'm just part of it. Each side has gone so far as to suggest the other may be treasonous. Could it be that the box which has for so long contained this struggle between debtors and creditors is perhaps showing signs of breaking. In a new essay by our guest William Hogan is titled Alexander Hamilton versus the Whiskey Rebels yet again. William Hoagland writes books and gives talks on fundamental American conflicts of the founding period with a focus on democratic versus elitist approaches to wealth, social class, and public and private finance. He's the author of five narrative histories, including The Whiskey Rebellion and his most recent book, Autumn of the Black Snake. His next book, under contract of Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud, is on the struggles between Alexander Hamilton and his enemies over the founding national financial plan. Hoagland's essays have appeared in Boston Review, Lapham's Quarterly, The Atlantic, The New York Times, and many other publications. Bill, thanks so much for being with us today. It's very timely. Good to be with you. Growing up in the suburbs in the 1950s, yes, I'm that old, I always felt pride in my country, the land of freedom and democracy, things 
the rest of the world wanted but did not have. It was a fun history to read, moving westerly and ever forward, increasing freedom and democracy. But in addition to the long overdue quest for civil rights for all, one thing that stopped me is when our successful war for independence was so commonly referred to as the American Revolution. To me, it never fit any definition of the word revolution, as far as I could tell. The riffraff fought the war for independence, and the rich benefited quite substantially by holding the reins of power in place of the British aristocracy. Was there a real class division at the time of our founding, and did the rich intend to keep it that way? Well, uh, all the complications... (laughs) that exists, which we will not necessarily go into right now, um, the short answer, I think, is yes. There was a real class division at the founding, often overlooked or swept away or kind of explained away um, in popular history and even in some scholarly history. Uh, To me, it's the most um, fascinating and sort of, to me, I guess, the most fundamental of the conflicts. There are many conflicts, and people talk about arguments among the elites all the time. What often gets swept under the rug is the, a fundamental conflict between elites on the one hand, whatever their differences with each other, and the massive number of ordinary people um, who, as you just said, you know, of course, were the foot soldiers in the revolution and did all kinds of other labor uh, in the building of the country. Um, this is uh, a story that I think is fundamental and yet frequently overlooked. And yes, class division and class explicit class conflict uh, did exist at the founding and I think played into the founding in a way that was, uh, was, was basic. Well, it does seem to be the case. Different people had different points of view about the uh, War of Independence. You know, it, was, it was our loot. We wanted more of the loot. We, meaning we, us, we the people, or the aristocracy at the time, and it goes on and on. Now, the historically popular Broadway musical Hamilton does seem to have sparked an interest in history in general. I think it's great that they're just sparking that interest. The audience comes away with a feeling that Hamilton was indeed a great man and that our financial system owes much to his vision. Your essay points out that a key part of the story, which had been in earlier productions, got cut from the show. As you say, leaving out the public finance efforts that made Hamilton who he was may be understandable in creating a work of musical theater. Now, of course, there's artistic license. Why do you think that part was cut out, and and what is the significance of excising that part? Well, I I can't say why it was cut out. Um, I think an earlier version of the show did have a number uh, around the Whiskey Rebellion. Um, So, you know, it could have been cut out for a lot of artistic reasons having nothing to do with uh, what I'm interested in, which is, you know, what the Whiskey Rebellion as an historical uh, phenomenon exposes about the entire sort of overwhelming nature of Hamilton's finance plan, his economic plan, and the nature of uh, his opposition to what we today would call democracy. Um, and what he at the time would have called democracy, too, although he would have meant that in a negative way. The Whiskey Rebellion was, an, uh, again, it's frequently relegated to a sidebar in a textbook. It's frequently seen as a little dust-up, kind of the final touches on getting the nation on its feet as a sovereign nation and so forth. Not very important. Yeah. Um, to me, it's a key. It's, a, it's like you oh, look into the Whiskey Rebellion, you start cracking open the entire background, economic background, background of economic struggle uh, between different classes 
going into and coming out of the revolution. So the significance of leaving it out um, is, is sort of, well, it goes along with the significance of really not getting into anything much about Hamilton's economic plans in the course of the show, which, of course, you know, it's hard to blame a, a Broadway show for not getting deeply into economics, right? <laughs> um, the, the interesting thing about that to me is that it, it exposes the absence of a real understanding of the class struggle um, in the sources for the show, the, the main source for the show, which is Ron Chernow's biography of Hamilton, guarded book. And yet, really, um, the show is not at fault being based on Chernow's book uh, for overlooking the real thing that made Hamilton important in the first place. Well, it, it, it does seem that so much of what we call history today is really myth. You know, just it has to fit into our preconceived notions. And I do find it fascinating, the Whiskey Rebellion and Shays Rebellions, very important things. And people have heard of it, but really nobody knows who the heck it is. And a long time ago, I was, I was impressed. I read uh, Unruly Americans and the Origins of the Constitution, the Origins of the Constitution. I think that's important to keep in mind. It focused on the two major uprisings leading to the Constitution, the Shays and Whiskey Rebellions. Historian uh, Woody Holton wrote, the framers who gathered in Philadelphia in 1787 were determined to reverse the post-war slide into democracy. They believed too many middling Americans exercised too much influence over state and national policies. Holton concludes that the primary purpose of the Constitution was to make America more attractive to investment. I will repeat that. He concludes that the primary purpose of the Constitution was to make America more attractive to investment. And to do that, power had to be taken away from the states and ultimately from the people. And I know the Shays Rebellion had a lot to do with who pays for, uh, you know, the, the creditors, uh, you know, to pay for the revolution, the, uh, you know, the separation from Mother England. It costs a lot of money. And as I understand it, it was about, okay, who's going to pay for that? The, the uh, farmers and the yeoman laborers or the people who lent the money? So uh, what about, what about uh, Woody Holton's uh, analysis of what it was about? Well, Holton's been influential on me, and I, uh, I agree with, his, uh, with his, what he says there. Of course, the book has a lot of detail that, that makes his argument persuasive. Um, but when you get down to it, yeah, I think that's a very, I think it's a good and useful way to look at the actual impulses going into the Constitutional Convention on the part of the people who created it. Because what we're always talking about, of course, is their differences. And I'm not saying those differences are unimportant. We're always talking about how they argued about this and that and the other thing. We, we rarely talk about what got them in the room in the first place which was a sense that the country was falling apart, which is usual, and it needed, it needed a stronger, we usually say stronger government, uh, stronger than the Articles of Confederation could supply. And we usually just sort of say, oh, well, yeah, things were getting rough. They didn't really have what they should have had, which is a national constitution, as if, as if they'd overlooked it, uh, but going in earlier. But they hadn't overlooked it. They'd very deliberately not created something like that. they created a confederation. Well, overturning that confederation was inspired You've just mentioned the Shays Rebellion, and that's one thing that inspired it. Uh, other things that inspired it were uh, excesses of democracy, as the framers saw it, in, in various other states besides Massachusetts, where the Shays Rebellion took place. Okay. Pennsylvania had actually abolished the property qualification for voting, which was a truly radical move at that really? time, so that really? while it did not create universal suffrage, 
uh, it created no. uh, a situation in which uh, any white adult male, regardless of their property ownership, could vote and even more radically could hold office. And they took away a bank charter from the uh, from the classic fat cat banker, Robert Morris of Pennsylvania, because they said it didn't serve the people. And, they, and this was a terrifying, this was as terrifying probably as the Shays Rebellion to the elites at the time, that, that a democratic uh, people could get organized and actually remove the, the means to shoring up elite financial power in the country. So there were, you know, when they opened the convention, Edmund Randolph, calling it to order, said, you know, what we are here to address, I'm paraphrasing now, but mm-hmm. uh, I can't quite call the exact quote, um, what we're here to address is the, uh, is the failure of the states to prevent democracy. <laughs> they were pretty blunt about it. Like, they're not, they're not hypocrites. This is one of the problems with talking about this. It's, uh, people think they were Democrats who somehow blew it or were hypocritical. It's not hypocritical. It was blunt. Um, and everybody was afraid of this encroaching democracy on all sides of all other questions. Boy, we sure st- still see that today. My goodness gracious, with uh, you know Bernie Sanders and uh, Alexandria uh, Cortez, uh, it, it, it's, it's you know it's still going on. They're, they're like the old DNC, the Democratic National Committee, seems to be afraid of losing the grip of power that the corporate backers have. And the banks and Wall Street, they're nervous. They don't want somebody like AOC or Bernie Sanders or some of the other people or uh, Elizabeth Warren. The Shays and Whiskey Rebellions. Shays was named after a fellow named Shays, who I believe was a farmer. The Whiskey Rebellion, I don't think was about whiskey in particular. We want more whiskey. Uh, That's it. (laughs) Tell us, you know... We should assume that our listeners have heard of these rebellions and maybe used to know what they were, but the passage of significant time maybe has eroded our memory somewhat. What were these rebellions about? The Shays Rebellion, as you said, inspired, was one of the inspiring factors for calling a constitutional convention at all, and it was an uprising by uh, farmers and laborers in Massachusetts over the very regressive tax policy of Massachusetts, which plays into the, the war debt, as you were just mentioning. Um, the whole question was how to handle this war debt, or really, you know, that's, that's, that's how we look at it now, we tend to look at it. The purpose of the war debt, as Hamilton and his then mentor in economics, Robert Morris, uh, the superintendent of finance for the Congress, the Continental Congress, um, the, the, the way they saw the war debt was that it wasn't some big problem that had to get managed and handled. They saw it as an incredible opportunity to get investors, rich American investors, investing essentially in national government, an interstate class of investors, invested by selling them bonds. You know, that's what it was. It was a bonded debt. So the whole idea was you had to fund that debt somehow, and you had to pay these people, not pay it off, which everyone always says about Hamilton, like he's the guy who got the country under control, got a good credit by paying off the war debt. Hamilton's goals were the exact opposite of paying off the war debt. And again, he made no bones about this. His goals were to fund the debt so that the rich investors were getting regular tax-free. He wanted 6% interest on face value of their bonds. At a time when those bonds' value actually had, had depreciated heavily in the market, yeah. he wanted them to be supported, essentially, you could say, bailed out uh, yeah. by legislation. That's what he was for. Right. In the meantime, there was all this chaos around the debt in the, in the various states. So Massachusetts did something actually Hamilton advised against, which is they started just trying to pay it all off really fast. Um, and the way they decided to do that was to tax extremely the, uh, the laboring farmers who actually weren't even 
you know, uh, participating in this in this bailout. Um, and of course, that seemed absurdly unfair, and it was driving many farmers into foreclosure. There was a foreclosure crisis, you know, ongoing around the country. Frequently, there were foreclosure crises uh, that are not unfamiliar to us, and so uh, they rebelled and they tried to seize the federal armory at uh, Springfield, Mass. And uh, and the thing about that is, it did terrify the elites around the country. Sure. But we always talk about it as sort of like, oh, there was this thing, the Shays Rebellion, like like it just happened. It was this weird rebellion. It was the it was a it was one of a number of organizational moves made by ordinary people from you know the Kentucky Territory uh, all the way up to Massachusetts in the kind of the western spine of the Appalachians, which of course moves westward as you get further south, and in Pennsylvania and in Kentucky and in Massachusetts and all over the country, you had these this this movement to either secede or to take over. All kinds of things were going on. Uh, it isn't just the Shays Rebellion. Uh, it was a movement of ordinary people against this highly regressive approach to dealing with basically a bailout to the rich. So that's that's kind of a very short, you know. That's put, it's not a history of the Shays Rebellion. It's putting the Shays Rebellion in some kind of realistic context. political and economic context, which sure. I think it often uh, lacks. Well, what about the Whiskey Rebellion? How did it get its name? Well, it comes along, you know. Shays Rebellion leads to essentially the Constitution. The Whiskey Rebellion is a reaction uh, in the 1790s, the Constitution now having been ratified, and Hamilton's economic plan now in place, the very plan he wanted a national government to exist in order to support. He had put his, his economic plan in place, which took the original, it, it sort of rationalized some of the things that Massachusetts was doing, and it nationalized that stuff in a more sort of sober and thoughtful and actually rather brilliantly constructed way to create, again, a regressive tax policy yes. that would support and bail out the uh, very few, very rich investors in the war debt, <laughs> continue that debt to sort of meld together the elites of the country, not actually in a monarchical or even necessarily in a hereditarily aristocratic, right. formally aristocratic form, right. but in an oligarchic form, yes. uh, to, to meld that group of elites together as absolutely wedded, its goals wedded to the goals of the nation. This was a very you know smart, thought-out plan to create a powerful nation out of what had been really almost nothing. Right. With the sort of the idea of the British Empire as its model, you know, this tiny little island island that that figured out uh, how to how to use banking and uh, centralizing uh, uh, wealth, concentrating wealth, and started taking over the world. Well, this was Hamilton's vision to a great extent. The the way he wanted to fund that uh, there is there was the whiskey tax, and this was the, the linchpin of his funding uh, system, which would assume all the state debts in the national debt, create the debt, build the debt to staggering size. Um, and bring together this uh, this uh, um, oligarchy uh, with its goals wedded to those of the country. And one of the ways, one of the key ways he was going to fund that was by placing a tax on whiskey, mm. which makes it sound like people who like to drink whiskey would be hurt by that, and that's all. But actually, Hamilton understood the whiskey industry inside out, as he understood everything he was doing inside out. And in fact, the tax was very carefully calibrated and designed at every... I mean, you can read the document. It's unbelievable how thoroughly he designed that document to drive small whiskey producers out of business, concentrate the industry around big commercial producers, um, and find a way to use that tax money to 
basically fund the bondholders, many of whom were the same people as the bigger, more commercial distillers, at the expense of the small, ordinary uh, farmer and laborer, you know, their and tenant farmer and landless laborer. Wow. And the with people who became the whiskey rebels, quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, and I call them that today too, because it's a cool sounding term or whatever, <laughs> but actually they were really economic rebels against oh, yeah. this entire oh. idea of, of, of a, an oligarchic system funded from the bottom up financially. Well, you know, I, I, it seems like, uh, you know, where we heard this before, uh, my sense is that, and, and Donald Trump is not alone, and we will get into this, but my sense is that, that he really feels like the people of the United States, the, the poor landless peasants, are there to serve the very rich. Uh, and, and, you know, it's trickle up. Tax the lower people to bail out the very wealthy people. Yeah, it's it's amazing to me. What about and back then, there was it's it's not a term we hear very often. Debtor debtor versus creditor. The traditions of debtor versus creditor did they continue into at least the twentieth century? Well, I mean, debt and credit certainly continue uh, to this day. I mean, of course, because we all I think participate to some degree in debt and in credit. Um, so sure, I mean, debt and credit are old. You know, there's the David Graeber book. What is it? Debt, the first, what does he say? 10,000 years or something like that. I mean, debt, you know, there, there are theories about debt that I'm not competent to really uh, assess, but um, that it, the debt itself in a way precedes money. It's not just the use of money. Yeah. It almost precedes and leads to the creation of money. And there are a lot of monetary theorists who argue about this kind of thing, which I am not um, expert in. Right. But certainly the 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 divide between i mean look more recently much more recently at our last you know financial uh ex- bubble exploding and uh the financial crisis and the foreclosure crisis that was involved there where that's a that's a debtor creditor crisis right um and who got bailed out example i mean so sure it, it it continues into the 21st century and it's with us it's with us today and predatory lending oh. um in which people who have no access to to funds other than to borrow at exorbitant rates and then make themselves somewhat you know, chained to the to the goals of the creditor. Well, that was going on uh, all over the place in the 18th century, and helped to form the country. And it continues today. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is called "Keeping Democracy Alive." Yes, some of us rather like democracy. Our guest today is uh, historian William Hoagland, discussing his uh, article titled "Alexander Hamilton versus the Whiskey Rebels Yet Again." Now, the father of our country, George Washington led a ragtag bunch of working-class men in the War uh, of Independence. His feelings about the men were not altogether complimentary, shall we say. I can't help but think that his attitudes toward that class continued as he became the father of our country. How did, how did he feel about the vast majority of uh, revolutionaries? Well, I think Washington, like really virtually, not literally, but most members of his class and type uh, at the time had very little regard for the intelligence, the competence, the um, political, you know, political action of ordinary people. I mean, I don't think that's, I don't think that makes him by any means unique, actually. I think that was, that was very, I mean, the sense that the mob was about to uh, take over at any given moment um, was was with these people. They were they were terrified of what they called democracy, and by that they meant mob rule. Yeah. So he definitely he did not have high regard for the for the values or the goals of ordinary people. 
Well, interesting how we've heard uh, Mr. Uh, Donald Trump talk about the mob, which to me means democracy. <laughs> you know, they hate the mob. They want to keep the reins of power. Um, as you write, as first secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton fought against those he and his allies disdained as social levelers. Who, who were his enemies? What was their position? Were they foolish enough uh, to call for democratic approaches to public finance? And what would that look they like? foolish enough to do that, even in the 18th century. That's the amazing thing. Hamilton had, of course, famous enemies that we know something about. Uh, Jefferson, of course, was yes. the most famous adversary, and, and that's how we often look at the arguments, really, again, among elites about who and uh, what the values ought to be. And Jefferson has a very interesting and, I think, kind of problematic relationship to being more more in support of democracy, obviously, than, than yeah, Hamilton. Yeah, um, and Madison, of course, is another famous enemy of Hamilton. They had been close allies in the Continental Congress as young lawyers pursuing the goals that, uh, that Hamilton ended up embracing, but, but Hamilton, uh, Madison broke away from that. Um, so that he had famous enemies. But I think that's what's so interesting. You know, before he ever had enmity with Jefferson, uh, Hamilton was that dead at odds against people who are, you know, the thing is, because they were not members of the elites, you know, their names are not as famous. They're not as well known. And yet what ordinary democratic organizations were doing to try to get a hold of the reins of public finance and to regulate also private finance, by the way, both of those things for democratic purposes um, and purposes of fairness, those were the, the people who he really was responding to when he first came up with his, um, with his finance plan. So um, it's a, it's a, you can name names and say there was this sure. movement going on all over the country, as I've said, and some of the names are somewhat famous. Thomas Paine yes. um, is a good example of someone whom Hamilton would have disdained and um, that John Adams knew well yes. and disdained for the very per reasons we're talking about, because he, he was allied with these movements for democratic finance. Um, and there are other names that are far less well-known. Uh, Herman Husband. Yes, uh, right. Thomas right. Young. Uh, Benjamin... Uh, Benjamin Rush, interestingly, was at, was at first one of these radicals, and then economic radicals, I mean, and then kind of moved into the, became friends with Washington and Adams and kind of moved out of that group. And there are other names, but it's so interesting because the, when Hamilton talks about the leveling spirit that must be defeated, yes, he's not talking about Jefferson. He hasn't even met Jefferson yet, I think. I'm, I maybe have my dates wrong, but that was not his focus. His focus was on these people and what they're trying to do to to. to seize the reins of finance, and he saw them as a mob, absolutely. <laughs> well, the Federal Reserve today, my understanding is that that is not at all democratic. The members are from the banks. They serve the banks. There has been talk from the libertarian right to democratize the Federal Reserve. Does that fit into this picture at all? Well, I think it has resonance with this picture. Yeah, it's, what's interesting, what you just said is really interesting, because the uh, the idea of democratizing or making, let's say, make, let's say making the Federal Reserve uh, democratically accountable, which of course means making it less independent. There's, a, there's an ethos of independence that the Federal Reserve should be, quote unquote, above politics or something like that. I think a, a move to, against that ethos um, seems to span maybe left and right to some degree um, right now, I mean, depending on what you mean by left and right, but elements that we might think of as, as right and elements that we might think of as left might agree on some of this. Um, 
I'm not, you know, good at pronouncing on policy and what's a good idea, but the idea of democratic accountability might be something that could unite certain elements anyway of left and right, because I'm not sure how divided, it's hard for me to tell, you know, and this isn't really my area, how actually divided the country is. Of course, the tone of our discourse right now is, is vitriolic and vituperative and angry, but I don't think we know, I mean, the leadership is divided and the press kind of plays up division. And of course, oh, yeah. I know there's a lot of division, but I'm interested in whether, you know, how, how divided is the people, are the people really, um, is a question I don't think it's really been tested. And one of these tests might be, how do we feel about um, making something like the Federal Reserve more democratically accountable? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. The, the fear of people uh, who don't think it should be is that it would sway in the wind of exactly what Hamilton you know, would have despised as sway in the wind of popular opinion. You know, the jealousies and resentments of the people. You know, and then you can get a demagogue kind of running things and leading the country down the wrong road. Um, but since uh, we already have a demagogue uh, yes. in power now, oh, yeah. it might be interesting to try some other means uh, and not be so fearful that the only result of the democratic accountability could be demagoguery, since our current system doesn't seem to prevent that anyway. Not particularly well. And I think it's, it makes me think about the whole concept of populism. One of the, I believe, uh, factors in the 2016 election was, do you want more of the same or do you want change? Trump like many right-wing nationalistic populists, uh, claimed he, he, he took the energy, he you know, intentionally uh, took the energy of the populace. And what the populists are about, I think, is democracy. And there are populists on the left and the right. And I, I think what it means is the government actually serving the people. I think in 2016, a lot of people felt like, who is this government? They're not working for me. So they wanted a big change. And Trump talked the talk. Uh, I don't know what the Democrat was for, I, our nominee. But uh, w- what about this uh, history of, of populism? There was a lot of populism in the Midwest with the uh, Democrat farm labor, uh, the prairie uh, populace, for example. It, it, it seems to me that's sort of going along the same thread. Your thoughts, Bill Hoagland? Well, that's interesting because it gets out of the sort of the founding period. But one thing I'm always trying to emphasize is that there was what we might call populism, which is such a loaded term now it's yes. hard to, to yeah. use. But um, there was populism at the founding and actually trying to crush that kind of populism was a large part of what the founding was about. Yes. And yet we also see populism uh, again. And some of it might seem um, mobocracy and irresponsible in certain ways, but you just mentioned the Farmer Labor Party. I mean, that's a g- great example. I mean, it, it, the Farmer Labor Party and other elements within the Democratic Party used to sort of organize to choose liberal candidates to run for, and they, they used the word liberal too, oh, yeah. to run, you know, the more liberal candidates to run for uh, election at various offices in the party when the party was not actually joined in some sort of ideological, unified in some sort of ideological idea about what it was, um, because you had a lot of conservatives in the Democratic Party then. So, the, the, you know, the Farmer Labor Party produced people like Hubert Humphrey yes, and Eugene McCarthy and people who I don't think anybody looking at them today, um, and Humphrey in his early days was yes. impressive than he was later on to many of us, but I mean, um, I don't think anybody looking at them today would say, oh, here you go. Here's the, here's the mobocracy, just demagogues <laughs> out of control. 
you know, Hubert Humphrey. Uh, and so there was a, this, when there was a populism that was that that made sense in this country, yes. it, it led to many like far from irresponsible um, liberal reforms. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's complicated to talk about now because there is also right wing populism. And so then using the term becomes tricky. But I think we should be looking to the, the what you just talked about there, the former Labor Party and and, uh, and historical events and organizations like that. I had uh, my 1976 personal choice for president, Fred Harris, on this show a long time ago. He's a perfect example of prairie populism. And, you know, what I think he was chair of the DNC and the splits within the DNC were there in 2016. They are certainly there now. I see sort of a, a, a Hamiltonian uh, gang of people that wants to hold on to power, keep the, you know, the informal aristocracy in power, and not let the, the rabble have too much control over who gets nominated. That struggle continues as well. As someone said, history may not uh, repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are talking about uh, a recent article, Alexander Hamilton versus the Whiskey Rebels. Yet again, our guest is uh, author and historian William Hoagland. Um, from, and you write that from Hamilton's efforts to demolish movements for an econ- economic equality came the economic blueprint. From Hamilton's effort to demolish movements for economic equality came the economic blueprint. Please explain what that was. Is it still largely in effect and how does that affect the wealth, the commonwealth of the country? Well, Hamilton's, you know, economic scheme, uh, you know, was a founding and foundational and elemental uh, part of creating the nation. It, it, you can't, I don't think anyone could say that specifically, if you go through the history of, you know, national finance and economics, that, that it, it has just continued. Um, it We've gone through many, many changes uh, with lots of fighting, especially around uh, central banking, all of which in the end led to the form that you just referred to earlier, the Federal Reserve, uh, which is different from Hamilton's uh, approach. But, but um, you know, it's, it's like the fights are still about some of the same things. That's the, that's the thing, whatever the immediate economic scheme is. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's the Hamiltonians, the people who really admire Hamilton and see him as... Uh, as perhaps one of the most important of the founders, they they point to modern industrial uh, America, uh, the 20th century, really as the as the sort of apotheosis of Hamiltonianism. Like it was embattled for a long time. The 19th century did not see just Hamiltonian finance. Um, on the other hand, by the time we get to oh, I don't know, a certain kind of like uh, I don't liquid capital markets and um, booming industry and manufacturing uh, all over the Midwest and all that stuff. Well, the Hamilton fans see that as Hamiltonianism at its, at its apogee. And I'm not sure they're wrong. Uh, I think he would have looked at that, I mean, to the extent that he could imagine, you know, stuff like heavy industry, which, of course, he didn't actually see in his time. But if, if he could have looked at that abstractly or structurally, I think he would have seen that as a positive a series of developments. Um, so... And he would, I don't think he would have been, you know, I mean, today, looking at, you know, corporate power and so forth, yes. I, he would have thought, you know, it, things are too big to fail. I mean, the people, uh-huh. like Geithner, who, who, um, mm. who, who came, up, came up with the, ba- the most recent uh, major bailout we've had, um, they are Hamilton fans. They are 
absolutely they are explicit in their in their in their being inspired by Hamilton. And so, I mean, so Peter, Peter Orsag, who was, I think, the uh, OMB director during Obama's time, had Hamilton's uh, portrait taken out of the National Gallery and brought into his office. Wow. Because I guess cabinet members and, and others are allowed to have uh, portraits from the National Gallery for a while in their offices. He wanted Hamilton there. And, you know, uh, Obama, President Obama, gave Geithner um, uh, Hamilton uh, the, the plates that were used to, to, what was it, to print? I can't remember what he gave him. He gave him a Hamilton uh uh, Hamilton memento as a, as a goodbye president, a congratulations on the bailout. Hamilton's influence, or at least his inspiration, on uh, those guys is uh, has been extreme. Boy, I guess the Democratic Party has uh, had these fissures for a long time between the Obama, Clinton, Hamiltonians, and the uh, the riffraff, the, the liberals. And a lot of us were perfectly happy to call ourselves liberals, and still are. On the question, well, actually. Bernie Sanders talks about, I mean, he's, he used the word socialism. I'd rather, quite frankly, he talk about economic democracy. That, I think that's a less frightening term, and I think that's what he really is about. Jumping ahead, oh, a couple hundred years or so, what about this concept of economic democracy? Is that, like, precisely what Hamilton was opposing, and was, was that be something that the Shays and Whiskey Rebellion, the the rabble might be for. I mean, is that economic democracy? What about that concept? Well, I, I think in the 20th century, it gets tricky to try to define it in uh, 18th century terms. On the one hand, I'm saying all of these fights existed in, in the 18th century and actually more than existed were fundamental to the formation of the nation. Right. On the other hand, um, trying to apply the 18th century model to the 20th century, I'll tell you why I think it gets tricky, and in a kind of, to me, funny way, is, of course, the New Deal uh, and FDR's entire ethos, I think we can see as um, strongly drawing on uh, what we might call economic democracy um, and democratic economics to, to a degree. I mean, the idea of, of, I mean, to a great degree. And there are programs that came out of the New Deal that, while not socialism in the European model, are certainly have socialistic elements. Yeah. And, of course, the right wing has been fighting against that ever since. Oh, yeah. But um, what's funny and interesting to me is that the way, I mean, FDR people used to say uh, Jeffersonian aims by Hamiltonian means. Uh. That, uh, they tried to rationalize these two supposed opposing parts, uh, foundational sort of impulses in American uh, history uh, that way. And what they did that's so fascinating is as they increased the power of government in a, in a, in a the federal government in a, yeah. in a notably, I'd say, Hamiltonian way, because certainly Hamilton was for, you know, a very, very strong uh, executive driven uh, state. And that certainly does sound like some of what FDR was up to. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, look at FDR going on the radio and getting support from ordinary people across the country when he faced opposition from more conservative members of Congress. Uh, Hamilton never would have wanted to appeal to people in that way. So you get these weird uh, sort of things that don't totally match and are kind of mixed and matched from the founding to the point where FDR decided to make Jefferson the face of the New Deal, um, even though I think Jefferson would have been fairly horrified to imagine many of the federal, federal government-focused uh, power moves that, that FDR was making. Um, nonetheless, Jefferson became the face of the New Deal, and that's why Jefferson was on the, the nickel. Oh, and that's wow. why there's a Jefferson uh, memorial. And that's why outside the Treasury building in Washington today, at the front of the building, 
is stands not Alexander Hamilton, who created that department, but Albert Gallatin, who was Jefferson's uh, Treasury Secretary, Hamilton's in the back. So there's a weird bunch of sort of ideological categories that get strangely mixed and matched by the time you get into the middle of the 20th century, which throw a lot of this stuff into a, into a funny sort of a cocked hat. So it's hard to say exactly uh, whether things persist or whether they get reshuffled in some way. Uh-huh, reshuffled, I think. And it's interesting to me, I think, FDR kind of balanced the the two trends. You know, he, he saved, as, as, as often been said, he saved capitalism from itself. He, you know, he did really save capitalism. Uh, you know, he was not a, uh, a Huey Long uh, kind of populist, but uh, mm-hmm. he, he kept right. the the wealthy protected. They, they, they kept that uh, place. And it was, uh, wow, an interesting, uh, very impressive way to, to put the two together. Now, in terms of fighting class warfare, right and left, the lightning rod today, moving up to 2019, is clearly... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, newly elected member of Congress. How does she exemplify the ages-old fight we've been speaking about? It seems like she's about democracy against oligarchy and channeling a deeply rooted strain on economic morality. How does she fit into this picture? Well, there's nothing, you know, that's not... um really pretty old in this country about many of the things she's saying. I guess that's part of my point. Um, you know, the, the founding was a fight to me over these very issues. That's why the argument that's going on in the Democratic Party right now seems to me to be the interesting argument that's going on in the country. I don't see an interesting argument coming, you know, between Democrats and Republicans, really, because the Republicans seem largely at this point to be uh, the party taken over by Trump, and I don't see interesting ideas flying around there. <laughs> The interesting fight to me is the age-old fight going on in the Democratic Party. Yeah. It's like that's the, that's the fight between what we might, you know, people talk about socialism and democratic socialism and social democracy and liberalism. You know, in a weird way, it's a fight. It's, it's an old fight between liberals and conservatives that's, yeah. that's going on nowhere but within the Democratic Party. It's where the energy is right now to me on both sides of that. Um, and so, so she's a very interesting um, personality to listen to, I think, in this context. And um, the funny thing to me, I did, a, I did a blog post about this as well, is that when people try to ground what they believe, like in the founding, so that right. um, I, don't, I haven't heard her do too much of this. In fact, I don't think I've heard her do any of it. But when no. writers are trying to say, look, she's like, just like, uh, and they go to these founding people and they're like, look, she's like Jefferson. She's like, someone said she's like a new Hamilton. Yeah. And because it's like you just want to tie what you like yes. and what you support to famous people from the founding period. And Hamilton's really big right now. So it's like she's a new Hamilton. Well, I think that's a really hard argument to make, wow, frankly. But um, she's not really a new anything of the famous founders to me. And this is, you know, this is me beating my usual drum, which is there's this whole other overlooked movement uh, against oligarchy at that time. I would say you could say she's a new Paine up to a point, Thomas Paine. And then the other people you would say, uh, actually, few people have heard of them. So that's a problem because the elites write the history and you only hear about the elites. But um, so in that sense, I think it's just funny when people want, and then other people are like, she's the opposite of the founding. Look at these quotes right, from the founders right. who wanted to stop the things that she wanted. Um, people who don't like her, you know. So everyone appealing to the founding around a sort of a lightning rod personality in politics today who absolutely is bringing back up these issues in a very assertive way that have been with us 
that formed us to some degree and have been with us ever since. Yes. Um, but then everybody trying to kind of ally their opposition to her or their uh, support for her with famous founders um, just kind of, in the end, uh, you know, drives me crazy. <laughs> Well, we do um, on both sides, on many sides. They, you know, it's a tendency to look for historic examples. Say, oh, this is nothing new. He's like to me. Some people call Bernie Sanders some, you know, radical, uh, you know, out of the mainstream leftist. I think he's got a lot of precedent, quite frankly. But you know, people on all sides try to do this, and you know, getting back to myth. Let's face it. You know, myth is always so much easier and reassuring than actual history, which is really complicated, as, you've, as we've discussed. You write, the underlying assumption is always that when the country was founded, our country's values were established, and the enemies of those values were laid to rest. How does that non-conclusion manifest itself today? Right, I think I was trying to say maybe about the... Uh Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez question in that, um, sure. you know, people act as if, well, you know, the right side won. Because right. This right. country is here and the fundamental essence of this country has to be good. Whether you're very much on the left or very much on the right, a lot of people just want to see the country that way as, as having established their, their values when it was established, which means the conservatives must have lost or we wouldn't have democracy here, say, or... Uh, the, the radical uh, populists must have lost, or the demagogues were shut down, or whatever. whatever however you want to look at it, right. you like to identify that with the founding, as if the founding was a resolution of something. Exactly. Um, now we just have to argue forever and ever and ever about <laughs> what that resolution was, um, and go back and forth and throw the founding at each other all the time, as if we can solve <laughs> arguments that way. My thing is that the founding was the beginning of something. Um, it... it the fight itself is what the founding really was about. And so if we could look at it that way, I have this crazy dream. I have my own crazy dream about how we could look at the founding, which is that if we could look at it more that way, um, as a place where, where all of these fights were sort of captured um, in essence somehow, and then, you know, make your, we could make our arguments about what we believe politically, like on their own merits, instead of always thinking we needed to have some sort of ideological support from the famous founders. Because when we're always looking for that, I mean, one thing I think I can say about them is if they were able to look ahead all these hundreds of years and, and see what we're doing with their legacy, as much as many of them were, you know, quite narcissistic and egotistical, no. and like to think that we knew who they were and that they were important, <laughs> I think they might all, even I'm talking about the elite founders, the famous sure. ones, yeah, yeah. they might be disappointed that all we do is argue about what they meant instead of making our arguments on their own merits and having our own fights. So I, I just sort of, on one hand, I'm always looking at the founding for, for conflict, especially economic conflict. And at the, on the other hand, I'm trying to suggest that if we understood the founding as an economic conflict, we might not always feel a need to go back and try to find precedent, try to ground our argument in something elemental, but realize that we're still fighting the same fight they were fighting. We are still fighting the same fight they were fighting. I, I, that's really... The point, I think, and it's you know it's just gone on and on and on, and there's been a box around it, and it's continued, and ah, maybe that's a good thing. Now, today, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Uh, we are keeping democracy alive with your help, dear listener. Our guest today is William Hoagland, who is the uh, author and historian who's written an article, Alexander Hamilton versus the Whiskey Rebels, yet again. It goes on and on and on. Now. 
today a lot of Americans are really weary of the conflict. They yearn for normalcy, a restoration of some kind of middle, not a government of the wealthy, nor lower income mob rule or left or right, just something centrist, normal. But what you write is there are no fundamental American values when it comes to the clash between great concentrations of wealth and democracy. The nation was created in the clash, not in resolution of the clash. It seems to me that when people shrink from the clash, they're yielding their own just power to those already powerful. What would you say to those who hate the clash and just want it to go away? What kind of citizenship is that? Well, I'm sympathetic to that feeling <laughs> in one way, um, emotionally. I, it's not like I don't get that. Yeah, really. Um, I uh, would love to uh, think that there was a way to uh, do politics that involves sort of everyone coming to consensus around some, you know, friendly, um, well-spoken, um, national, moderate type. It just doesn't seem to work, you know. I mean, in, in just what you just said, I guess I would I would agree that like when you're always look, if you're always seeking some sort of moderation, I mean, if you're facing important crises, that just doesn't, doesn't seem to be the way things have gotten done before. Mm-hmm. I mean, when FDR took over, he you know was very explicit about welcoming the hatred of his enemies, yes, and you know being judged by the people who hated him. Um, and, you know, if you don't think we're in a crisis right now, then I can, t- this is this, I think is, this is the real issue. Um, in the times of crisis, you really, I think, would need to, to think about what to do about the crisis. And of course, someone just screaming, you know, for people's heads is not actually necessarily going to work <laughs> either. But the idea that like, if we just all come together and reason together behind sort of me in my reasonable way, um, that doesn't seem like much of a pitch to me either for addressing things that go beyond our, our immediate economic clashes and so forth and go all the way to the sort of the fate of of uh, the planet as not as a planet, because it'll still be, you know, doing its thing as a planet, but to the, the life of human beings on this planet and the rest of nature as we know it. I mean, when you're looking at crises like that, it seems almost sort of insane to uh, try to just find moderation when we have a history, we do have a history of having addressed crises before with creativity and yes. boldness and willingness to fight. Right, willingness um, to fight. You know, that's not me. I'm not that personality type. You know, I, yeah. I would prefer, of course, not to be in a fight. <laughs> but I feel like the political leadership that supposedly, you know, that we're trying to get behind to address really significant difficulties, real significant challenges, we want them to be able to fight. Or what are, we, or what are they, really? Um, so, um, I feel, you know, I, what, what I feel is like, I wish I lived in a calmer and more stable feeling world, but that doesn't really say much about how we're going to get things better, um, in a hurry. That doesn't say anything about that. So when I look at history, I mean, I'm not, I don't, you know, generally, I mean, I'm pronouncing now about how to look at things now, and that's just personal to me. Um, I don't usually, you know, come up with ideas about how people ought to think now about current politics. What I try to do is underscore the historical nature of these clashes and maybe remind people that the fight has always been kind of what there's been 
and that when we've done big things, it has in no way been by seeking moderation, whether it's uh. Samuel Adams uh, in 1776 or whether it's FDR you know, in the 30s. I mean, this is just not how we've addressed crises. That's a very good point. As, I, as listeners are probably tired of me saying, the only thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. And it's all there, and there's a lot to learn from it. And, and moder- you got as, as someone said, democracy is not a spectator sport. You've got to get involved. And I think, I like to think that the, the Trump era has uh, inspired a lot of people who haven't been involved before, whether it comes to you know, civil liberties, uh, the environment, democracy itself. Uh, I think more people are getting involved. I personally think that's a good thing. I mean, I know which side I am on in general. I mean, I am not a communist, obviously, although some people have probably called me that. What the heck? Uh, (laughs) But I I consider myself deeply patriotic. The prospect of beating the other side now seems as dim as it must have for the whiskey and shays rebels. I see the plutocratic rulers of America today in the same way. I imagine America's revolutionaries felt the same about the British royalty. The conflict was built into the Constitution. Uh, strategically, how might the struggle for democracy best be carried on today? And I know this is a little bit outside history, but, oh, it's fun to talk about. It's way outside. Um, but I will say this, <laughs> uh, uh, to, your, to your comments about the Shays and the Whiskey Rebels, you know, this is, this is, I kind of end up leaving people with the conflict because, sure. uh, of course, the Shays Rebellion was shut down and led to the Constitution, which was designed, and the Hamiltonian aspect of the Constitution was designed to shut that whole thing down, not just the Shays Rebellion, but across the country. And, of course, the Whiskey Rebellion was also put down. Um, And that's how American sovereignty was established, uh, really, was by putting down the so-called Whiskey Rebels. So the founding of the country does not really offer inspiring models for democratic finance. It, it, It reminds us, looking at it, you know, realistically, um, reminds us that those fights went on then and that there was always, always a, a powerful movement toward democratic finance, which was so powerful, actually, that it had to be put down with military force by the United States. Mm. That's how powerful it was. So that, that is a reminder. But uh, in terms of narrative stories that are inspiring for victory for democratic finance, I don't see them in the founding. I see the founding kind of the opposite way. So then I think you have to look elsewhere. And then the story, which I don't really tell in detail in my books, but others have, of how democracy did, in fact, come to the United States, um, is a bumpy and tricky and often painful and often ugly story. But again, it didn't happen, and that's the point, it didn't happen through moderation. It happened through a series of, of strange, often conflicted events within the states, um, and then, you know, how the civil rights were, were you know, and then we had a war, which, of course, in the 1860s. I mean, this is not a story of moderation, of things moderately developing toward a lovely, uh, you know, expansion of rights or whatever. It's always been spasmodic and violent and problematic. And so, but, but those stories, there are some inspiring stories there. And I think if you want inspiring stories... It's tricky to look at the founding, but it's also true that we have made democratic uh, change in this country. It has happened. And then so to look at where that happened and how and why, and in opposition to what, um, I think is, is really, that's, I, it's not strategic politically. It's just in terms of like uh, the literature that I'm interested in. That's, that's kind of where I, where I recommend people looking. Uh, interesting. And you conclude your article with the following. If we were to read the American founding for the hot mess that it was, 
and take up economic policy as a fight for where we want to go, not where we want to pretend we were. We might do better with both history and policy. Say more of what you mean by that. Well, yeah, I just uh, it's the idea that, um, you know, maybe, and again, this is my sort of over, it's more of like an ideological or an intellectual uh, rather than an activist approach, but I do think that when we are bogging ourselves down in ideas about where we think we once were, where we wish we had been, wishing to get back to, quote unquote, times that were supposedly yeah, the better, right. um, we just, we're not thinking about where we're going. I mean, everything's changed. Everything's changing. There are things that are going to happen soon that I won't understand. I mean, there's already many, many things happening that are just generationally I don't understand. Right. And if we could just kind of do what, I mean, I'll just, you know, Jefferson, for example, all kinds of problems with him, but like, you know, the idea that the, the world belongs, belongs to the living, uh, that that's the place to look is uh-huh. the, what's happening now and what could happen for the future rather than all this fantasizing, which I see kind of across the board, <laughs> liberal, right, left, liberal, conservative right wing, you know, just whatever you want to call all of the various categories. I see this kind of fantasizing about the American past, which, and I don't know if it's greater here than anywhere else. I'm just more immersed in it here. So I don't know, but it seems like as a, as a, as a national sort of pastime, fantasizing about the past just doesn't seem to me to be helpful to trying to make whatever change you believe in uh, come for, come true for the future, which is where I think the founders might've actually advised us to be looking. And to fantasize about the past, making it mythic and not real, it doesn't do any good. Fascinating stuff. We've spoken before. I look forward to speaking again. If people want to read more of your stuff, I assume there's something on that Internet thing to which you can direct people. Yeah, the article we just were talking about is on my blog, which is just williamhoagland.com, you know, William Hoagland, one word. And from there, you will find a bunch of my stuff in various other places, uh, not just published by me. Well, thank you so much for uh, shedding light into uh, the past and maybe the future, what we can do realistically. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bert. This is from The Play. Talking about Aaron Burr, who was the eventual demise of Hamilton. Pardon me, are you Aaron Burr, sir? That depends. Who's asking? Oh, sure. Sir, I'm Alexander Hamilton. I'm at your service, sir. I have been looking for you. I'm getting nervous. Sir, I heard your name at Princeton. I was seeking an accelerated course of study. When I got sort of out of sorts with a buddy of yours, I may have punched him. It's a blur, sir. He handles the financials. You punched the burr, sir. Yes, I wanted to do what you did, graduating too, and join the revolution. He looked at me like I was stupid. I'm not stupid. So how'd you do it? How'd you graduate so fast? It was my parents' dying wish before they passed. You're an orphan. Of course, I'm an orphan. God, I wish there was a war. Then we could prove that we're worth more than anyone bargained for. Can I buy you a drink? That would be nice. While we're talking, let me offer you some free advice. Talk less. What? Smile more. Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for You can't be serious You wanna get ahead Yes Fools who run their mouths off wind up dead What time is it? Showtime Like I said Showtime, showtime, yo I'm John Lawrence in the place to be A two pints of Sam Working on three high. Those red coats don't want it with me. Cause I will pack, chick a plat, these cops till I'm free.
m'appelle Lafayette De Lancelot, de Bear Revolutionary Set I came from afar just to say bonsoir To the king, cause it's toi who is the best, c'est moi Bra, bra, I am Hercules Mulligan Up in it, loving it, yes I heard your mother said Come again, hey. lock up your daughters and horses Of course it's hard to have intercourse Over four sets of corsets Wow, no more sex, pour me another brew, son Let's raise a couple more to, to the, the revolution. revolution Well if it ain't the prodigy of Bristol College Aaron Burr, give us a verse, drop some knowledge Good luck with that, you're taking a stand You spit, I'ma sit, we'll see where we land oh. The revolution's imminent, what do you stall for? If you stand for nothing, Burr, what'll you fall for?